Hello, we love words. Written, spoken, hinted, shouted, gentle, outrageous, and always enlightening. Intriguing. But there again, we are library staff. You'd expect nothing less. So tune into Library Words for interviews, memories, business tips, stories, and more. We'll talk to authors, poets, and local people, always keeping you usefully entertained. Hi, I'm Rachel New, Outreach Officer for Lewisham Libraries. And this week I'm talking to Vanessa Potter, a South East London author. Vanessa's second book, Finding My Right Mind, is about the author's experiences of 10 types of meditation and has just been published by Trigger Publishing. Welcome to Library Words. Welcome Vanessa and thank you for joining me. Thank you. So to write this book, uh, Vanessa embarked on a road trip exploring 10 different meditation practices um, and you collaborated with um, some Cambridge neuroscientists who measured 300 hours of your brain activity plus you had to record lots of subjective reports of your own experiences. Is that a good summary? Yeah, actually, though, it was more like um, six, seven hundred hours, actually. Okay. Uh, it was, yeah, with everything included. Yeah, it was a lot. So um, in the book, we've got uh, the theory behind all the meditation practices. Uh, we've got your subjective experiences and we've got the hard data from the brain activity. So it's kind of catering for lots of different um, levels of interest in the practices of meditation. So I'm thinking that the people that have started listening to this interview or watching this interview, um, some of them may be experienced meditators, some of them may have been complete skeptics and never have done meditation before. We've got people that are going to be very evidence-based and want the science and then we've also got people who are more instinctive or interested more in your personal experiences. But what about you? How would you describe yourself at the beginning and have you, have you changed over the experiment? Um, yeah, um, I mean, when I started the experiment, I it, it was curiosity that was driving me, and I, you know, I dabbled. I had a limited experience of meditation, and I'd had my mind exposed to other ways. And I was like, right, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to go investigate this. And so I had this. I look back and I kind of smile at myself, but I had this tick list of, you know, I want this to happen. I want to feel this, and and it was, you know, I want to lower reactivity. I want to feel more calm. I want to feel more connected. And it was this sort of requirement. Um, and and then as time went on and I progressed through the different techniques, and there was this, you know, accumulative effect of all of, of meditating regularly every single day over a period of years. And I look at that list and just just rip it up and just say, this is it's not why I do this now. So it has changed me in terms of how I view meditation, what I want out of it and what I get out of it. Um, I never had on that list the who am I question. Right. I never had why am I here? What, what's a deeper sense of meaning, if you like? Just that slightly existential question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I never that, it was all very practical things and it's those are now the that's more my journey now is is, is considering um the awareness of myself and and why my life plays out in the way it does but that much deeper understanding of kind of me mm. so um when you did recorded on the app at the end um so if your focus say changed throughout the meditation that was it was a kind of a graph across a timeline was it 
yes it was absolutely timelined in in quarters so um i i would if 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 my if i became more focused towards the end i was really kind of engaged with the meditation then that would increase towards the end and i did it on my finger with my finger line like that mm. so i drew it um yeah so it was quite clear so you you did it afterwards so it didn't interfere with the actual experience at, at the time but i guess it's that then you introduced some level of um retrospective bias yeah one of the things i had to do was kind of train myself to be in a meditation but also observing it at the same time and one of the things i kind of had to do to kind of keep my sanity on that was have a number of meditations that i didn't register that i didn't log that and without the headset that were just a practice um, because there is an element of meta awareness going on if you think i've got a camera lens inside my own mind recording what's happening <laughs> and i'm having to hold some of those thoughts that memory of the experience then it does it will absolutely have an impact on the experience but what happened is i got better at that it's like you know meditation is training this is what we've always got to remember so all i did was train myself to be able to have that meta awareness and have the experience and over time i got better and better and better at that mm, that's so interesting so um in terms of what the founders of each of the meditation practices claim can be the outcome would you say that that fitted with your experience were you surprised by the outcomes i mean you said that you know things changed towards the end you know as time went on and that you um were getting different outcomes from what you expected but how does it compare with what they claimed you would get so each of the practices had uh, kind of a different stance on this i'm i'm kind of thinking transcendental meditation mm. if you go to their website it's just claims you know basically tm uh, which is a mantra based practice and a quite a kind of commercial one it's um very secular it's very much um, aimed at a kind of, I mean, it's everybody, but it's, it's picked up by businesses and leaders because it's seen as, you know, a, a method that can improve productivity and reduce stress. And, but they will make a lot of claims. Uh, but but TM um, were instrumental, um, Maharashi was instrumental in starting research um, and, and, and scientist, scientific study of meditation. So that's why there is so much, you know, so many more claims associated with TM. But so, so they kind of claim anything basically can, can will, and will be a direct result. But what we realized and, and had to take into consideration was the accumulative effect. So I started with MBCT, uh, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, because it was seen for us as a bedrock this foundation block of just learning some fundamental mindfulness skills because mindfulness comes into many of the practices. It even comes into TM right at the beginning. It's like your door through into the TM experience. And so that was a really good foundation block. But of course, then that informed all the other practices. So it's really hard to separate out and say, this technique did this. There are a few things that I personally experienced. So TM, just going back to that. And in fact, the other mantra practice, which was Christian meditation, and the mantra is repeating this word over and over. I just had these spikes of creativity. And that was, that was different. And that was noticeable during those techniques. So there is something about the way my mind, you know, hooked onto a mantra practice and it released a lot of creativity. Now, this isn't uncommon. David Lynch is the classic 
person who's talked a lot about those spikes of creativity that he's experienced. Compassion meditation is designed to evoke and cultivate and develop compassion. And that's what it does. So, you know, so some of them were fairly prescriptive. Um, there were specific practice with a specific um, intention. It's different from goals. It's an intention. And they absolutely did that. Um, what is intention? It's one of those words that get used used a lot, but what does it actually mean? So an intention, um, and, and I do separate it from a goal, because a goal feels harder. It feels um, less flexible. And an intention is how you feel about something. And if you have an intention to feel compassion, then you are you're coming at this the right way you're coming at it open and you you it's a want a desire rather than a need and i think it's just a, it's a really subtle difference so i'm a trained coach and we use goals as a very specific aim so in a in an intention is more at the beginning starting off whereas the goal is at the end that you're trying you're striving to get to and all the language associated with goals versus intentions once a hard set of words and the other ones are much more softer much more um, um spiritual intentions so how does it affect a meditation if you do or don't have an intention? Oh, good question. Um, I think actually intention is quite important uh, because otherwise, well, the mind needs, I find my mind needs something to hang on to. So if I come to a meditation with an intention, like for example, recently I've I've been working and doing some meditation with a friend and we've worked on abundance and scarcity. So that's an intention. So this is something that we've noticed in our life, this kind of, and both of us, scarcity of time. Hmm. And so, and we kind of want to flip that and have our mind consider the other side of scarcity, which is abundance, which is, we don't think that we have all the time in the world, but it's a choice. We do actually. It's, the scarcity element is a very, is very prevalent in modern society. And so we did a, some practices that were focused on that. So our intentions, what we brought into those those sessions was a desire to be flexible and look and reframe how we were living at the moment, which was the scarcity mindset to an abundant mindset. And it's a it's just a switch. It's the same coin. You're just flipping it round and it's and it's a revelation. So I think if you don't come with that intention, you might lose track of what it is that you're doing. So that for me is um, quite an important guide. Maybe if you see it as a guide, that's a better way of saying it. So, so this this idea of, of, of the now is something that I've spent much more time recently actually with an intention, I've worked on it. And I've had a few revelations with that. And for me, that's been playing around with different techniques. So I'm doing a lot of outdoor meditation at the moment, a lot of walking, visual meditations, where um, I, I use a kind of a form of mindful seeing and a lot of grounding into my body. And that's where I start to get close to that idea. And, and I would describe it as landing in your body. If you can imagine as a child, if you go back to your child and you remember standing on a wall and jumping off the wall and landing on the floor with that kind of delicious excitement that children have where you jump and you boom. And even if you've never had that moment, if you can imagine it, that where your feet hit the ground with that solid connection, 
that's presence, right? That's where you are utterly landed. And I think the word landed is a better word to use. And what happens for me is there's this, back to this hand movement, is there's this expansion, this opening up. And when I land in that moment on the ground, I can feel everything. So I feel my body, my feet, I can feel my senses are alive. And for me with visual loss, so I have low color and I have low vision, that's a hangover from my illness. The world fills out, it becomes fleshed out, it becomes more vibrant. And I have this incredible sense. And it's a really deep kind of warm sense that comes up me. I'm sounding very woo woo. I know I can hear myself, but this is so true what happens. I get this really overpowering sense of being alive. Mm. And I think for me, the now and the present is this constant repeating moment of going, oh, I'm alive. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yes. Oh, and, and when you join those moments together, what comes with it, and this is another kind of meditation word, is awe. This sense, and sometimes it can be gratitude, this, this sense of joy. And it's brilliant, actually, if you can tap it, because it's such a powerful feeling. And that, for me, is the presence. But it's taken me ages, years of working and working and working, and I probably only now really can describe that experience viscerally because I know it. And that's, so that's taken a lot of work. Having said that, I have been teaching um, a friend of mine uh, meditation skills and <laughs> showed her one exercise, bang, she got it. She just has this overwhelming sense of presence. She can just bring it on. And I'm like, how, how is it that you do, I do this exercise with you once and bang, you've got it. And I've spent three years and that's just the, that's just how it is. You know, some people have this ability to to understand this now nowness because it's not just now it's now now it's 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 the immediacy of it. Mm -hmm. and, and and so it's a different process for different people, but um, you can get it quite quickly or like me, you have to labor for you know, a while before it's it. Worth it. <laughs> it is worth it. It's so it's worth it with bells on because I can recapture that. So I can go back and I can do those. I've created like a bespoke, you know, plan of meditations that I know will help me evoke and come into that state of mind quickly. And the feeling and the, the sense of coming. And again, this is another phrase, you come home to yourself. Well, yes, okay, I do come home to myself. And it's lovely because I feel connected and I feel I come back home and I'm just nice. You know, I don't want to shout at anyone and I want to hug people. <laughs> you know, I want to hug my kids rather than shout at them. And and those are the benefits. That's, mm. the, you know, what people want. They want to be less stressed and all the rest of it. But you've got to have all the other stuff up front before you get to that. And that's what I think sometimes gets a bit missed in the meditation world. We don't explain that. meditation is training it's mind training so you can use totally different methods that suit you and there is no rule book it does not have to be mindfulness of the breath a lot of people especially if they've experienced trauma or if they have any kind of breathing condition mindfulness of the breath is panic inducing you know it's, it's a distressing practice a lot of people don't like having their eyes closed um, and there can be myriad reasons for that 
So there are lots of practice, well, not lots, but there are plenty of practice you can do with eyes open. And in fact, there's a really good argument for doing eyes open practices. The walking meditation is one I always advocate because you're dealing with the everyday mind. You know, there's a danger that you go and have these moments where you meditate in isolation in your, your moment. But that's not your life. That's just this moment. You know, you've got to go off and now deal with everything else and cook dinner and, you know, go to work or, you know, do a commute, all these other parts of your life. So, you know, if you can take somehow transfer that meditating mind into the real world, then that effect is going to last a much longer. And also you're conditioning yourself to cope with life. So for me, the walking meditation is a, an obvious one. And a lot of people um, can find this really easy to do because you can do it for a minute. And there's also this other thing about, you know, does it have to be, you know, 30 minutes? No, you don't run for 30 minutes straight away. You run for a minute and then you walk and then you run for a minute and a half. It's exactly the same with the practice. You can even start learning a meditation practice by just becoming aware of your body. You can stand and do the washing up and just ground, you can do a standing meditation, washing up, just ground into your feet, go, oh, feet, hello. <laughs> Don't think about you very often, stand on you all day long, you just have a little moment, go, feet, oh, they're quite warm. Hmm. You know, that's a practice, because it's an awareness practice. So I think we've got to get away from this myth that it's clearing your mind, it's sitting in isolation in the lotus position, that it's difficult, it's hard work, you know, it, it doesn't have to be, it can be very accessible, very easy to introduce, and then it becomes a habit. And then you, when you start to get the benefits and you start to feel good, then it's a habit you want to repeat. But you can also just go to your window mm. and look out into your garden. And there's a really nice exercise where you play with focus. So you look out your window and you can find a tree and maybe a shed and there's a fence and you just gently switch your attention from one thing to the other and back. And so you're learning to focus attention and you're keeping your awareness on those objects. That for a minute is a form of mindful seeing. <clears throat> That's an awareness practice. So walking down the road on the way to the bus, you just stop for a micro moment and hear the birds. And when you switch on your senses like that, one of the things that happens is you get this flood. It's like they don't switch off, but that's awareness training. And so now I, my attentions are switch, switched on quite a lot in an auditory level. So I just hear the birds everywhere. I'm, I'm they're just in my head, but I love it because I know that that's my, uh, that is my showing my ability to be here and living and alive and, and engaging with my senses. And so these are all practices. What about the idea of a lot of the practices seem to be quite isolated? You're in silence. Some of them you were like one of them, you were on a retreat for a whole week and you weren't allowed to speak to anyone in terms of that versus a sort of communal experience, which you think would be also very good for generating positive emotions and uh, feeling supported. How do you feel that those two ways of doing things compare and how did you find it with the isolation? So Vipassana was the retreat and that's actually 11 days oh, wow. and I found that hellish. I found it very difficult because there's two things you separate, you need to separate out the technique, which is essentially a very elaborate body scanning method. You sweep your attention up and down your body and you really train it. It's quite arduous, hard work. Um, but I quite enjoyed that. 
What I hated was the isolation and the monastic environment in which it is taught. And no eye contact. We're human, we're tribal, you know. We, you know, have so much nonverbal communication that goes on all the time. So to have all of that severed and to live in a room by myself and, and not look at anybody and no touch, you know, we're quite tactile people. Um, I found that very difficult. I found that distressing, actually. So, yeah, they, I, I mean, it does. Some people go and have an extraordinary experience at, uh, at a Vipassana retreat. Um, but I find it, I think it's quite challenging personally. I think you need to have a bit of a practice already ongoing to be able to cope. Because you, you meditate for 10 hours a day. I mean, it's it's not for the faint-hearted. Um, yeah, so isolation in me doesn't work. I think personally, meditating with another person is 10 times more powerful. Because one of the dangers of sitting on your sofa and doing this by yourself is, I was describing meditation recently, and it's a little bit like walking down a road and not seeing potholes. So depending on your experience in your life, if you've had a traumatic experience in your life, you can step into a pothole using meditation quite quickly and you can drop and you might just drop a little bit or you might drop all the way and you might meet that traumatic experience. And that can be really quite distressful and you can actually re-traumatize yourself. And so, sitting on your sofa you don't know necessarily what your response to this experience is going to be so doing it under the guise under the guidance of a teacher for a start but also in a space with other people where you can talk about your experiences afterwards i personally think is really crucial within buddhism there is something called the sangha and it's this community that surrounds the whole meditation experience we just pluck this one aspect <laughs> and go, all oh, right, well, we'll just take this one thing and treat it like a tool. Whereas within Buddhism, we're looking at all the other aspects of our life. We're looking at our food, what we eat. We're looking at physical movement. We're looking at our ethical framework for life. So there's all these other aspects and they all feed in. So I think there's a danger of, of just plucking out this meditation element and doing that on our own without considering how those other aspects bleed into your life, but also not getting the support. And I think it's one of the things that's really missing with all the apps and people sitting on sofas. You, some of the apps you can connect with other people. I think that's good. And there's now the circles and groups where you can talk. If you ever go and have a look at any of those, I mean, I use Insight Timer now. They are full of people with big experiences talking about them, which is a great thing. Yeah, and there's lots um, of live events on, on Insight Timer as well, which connect yeah. to people all around the world. Yeah, so they're, they're trying to do that connected thing. Um, but, but also there's another aspect. If you go to a group meditation, I know COVID has changed all these rules, but I used to go to a, um, a group practice every Sunday morning. The energy, and I mean, energy is a bit of a woo-woo word, but, you know, we all know what energy is. You know, if, if you're at a party and, you, you know, you, you get a, a bad feeling because someone's walked in the room, that's energy. You know, we all know what that's like. You get a bad feeling about somebody. You know, your hackles are up. You don't know why. So this is the same energy that can happen in a meditation group. And and that can really travel around the room and it really informs and changes the experience. My meditations in those situations were always more stable and consistent. And actually, that's how I got, if you like, better, not better at meditating, but better at sitting still and having the focus to meditate was by doing a group practice and kind of imbuing. And if you like harnessing that energy, because it's a very positive energy, invariably. 
So, you know, you, sp you spent a lot of time reliving moments of injustice and dwelling on mistake, past mistakes and past traumas. And as you say, that's not always helpful. But do you feel that was part of your, an important part of your journey? Or was that just because you were having too much time on your own during the meditation? Is it a healthy thing to do? Ever? I mean, I, it depends on your individual situation. Mm. Um, that's partly this chatterbox mind mm. this mind the and, and and within a lot of meditation schools it's called the ego you know the ego mind where that it and it's got this agenda and it's often this ego mind this chatterbox mind is really often quite angry and hacked off and it and it, it's quite good at you know getting onto a focus of one person when you were eight who you know nicked your lunch at school and 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 i'm not unique with this and it will go on and on and on and particularly in a vipassana retreat which is very much where that happened there's no other noise. There's no other real noise. So my mind's making noise and it's shouting. And at one stage I described it as having a loud hailer because I really felt, I was like, can you hear this? What's inside my head? And I know a lot of people live with that and, and it can be very distressing. So it's, it's, it's nice to be able to have some tools where we can just go, whoa, you know, and help us stand back. But but there is sometimes where it's a torrent and there's nothing you can do about it and it's this flood and all you have to do is just let it flood over you but the trick is to not engage with it so you don't get on i, I used to have a lovely phrase and i still use it um, a thought train and as soon as you say it, i think it's quite evocative so you get on a thought train and my thought trains were bullet trains they were the japanese ones. they were this british train nonsense they were bullet trains they were boom. And I was on that thought train, I was off, I was eight, and she nicked my lunch, and this happened. You know, and before I know it, I'm all the way, and I'm living. And the brain doesn't know the difference between past and present. So I'm living that moment again, and that anger and the justice. And that's not helpful, because that's the past. So what do I get? I get nothing out of that other than a, to be hot and bothered. So meditation is this great way of going, whoa, I'm on a train, jump off, jump off, jump off. And you get this ability, you get tools to know how to jump off. And then you see the train going speeding off in the distance and you can give yourself a bit of, ha ha. <laughs> and that's awareness. That's all it is. It's just awareness of the, the, this constant trying to jump off thought trains and just stay. And actually the more you do it, the less the trains are there. And that absolutely happens. It becomes less busy. And when you learn to nip it in the bud and put this space, the I think my mind has learned that that you know doing that massive rumination i mean i could ruminate for days over something i will ruminate now for weeks uh, sorry weeks for hours over something or minutes it's it, it shortened it down it certainly doesn't take it away but it really reduces the time and so therefore the impact because i don't behave according to what my you know thoughts were i can see them that's really helpful So you have a podcast series that's already available. Do you want to say something about that? Yep. So that's called Finding Your Right Mind. And that's been going, it's had one series that's completed and I've got series two, which has just gone live, which is uh, a series of interviews with women aged uh, 20 to 90 who all hit a decade birthday. And it's wisdom throughout the years. And that's a really exciting mm -hmm. series, which is just um, in the process of going out. 
So we'll put links to your podcast and your website and everything else um, uh, underneath the video uh, and underneath the podcast. Um, so we won't go through all of those at the moment. Uh, so to finish, I wanted to recommend you some reading because obviously I'm working for Lewisham Library, so we like to recommend reading to people. So there's a big reading list on the back of your book, so you've already read lots of books. Um, just a couple more that you might not have heard of. This one, um, A Book of Silence by Sarah Maitland. A, she's a, um, a writer and she has a year of silence in Scotland. It's very poetic and beautifully written, so I think you would enjoy this mm -hmm. one. And there's another one um, called Teach Us to Sit Still by Tim Parks, which is very funny account of his uh, meditation practices when he had problems with his bladder. So I think you'd enjoy both of those books. So they sound very relatable. <laughs> yeah, if you haven't had enough of reading meditation books already, <laughs> you might need a little break. Well, thank you very much for joining us with Lewisham Libraries. So Vanessa Potter, author of Finding Your Right Mind, available in all good bookshops and coming to Lewisham Libraries as well. So hopefully you'll soon be able to get, borrow that from our library service. Okay, thank you very much, Vanessa. Thank you so much. What a stimulating discussion with Vanessa. I'm Rachel New, Outreach Officer for Lewisham Libraries, and I hope you enjoyed listening. For the full interview with Vanessa Potter and to read her book, Finding My Right Mind, follow the links in this podcast description. Thanks for listening and catch us again for more library words. Remember to subscribe to never miss an episode and links to all of our social media can be found on the podcast summary.